You are listening to the Hill City Church Podcast. Our mission is to become and make disciples who walk with God, connect with people, and impact the world. Welcome to our brand new teaching series, Prophets and Kings. Every single year as a church, we like to go through an Old Testament teaching series. I know that for many Christians, maybe they don't spend much of their year reading the Bible in the Old Testament, but for us, it's so incredibly important for you. If you are a follower of Jesus, the Old Testament is your theological heritage. Uh, We've been grafted in as God's covenant people, and so when we understand the story God was telling through the nation of Israel and the covenants God made with his people, it actually helps us understand the new covenant that we have in Jesus. But for clarity, this teaching series, Prophets and Kings, is not just about biblical education, although that is very important. Still, as we look through these stories of what God did in the time period of the kings, the kingdom of Israel, we're going to see spiritual transformation. Uh, I believe as we look at these stories, God is going to teach us about our lives, the temptations that we face, power, and how we can actually stay true and be faithful people to him. So last year, we actually went through uh, the time period right before the kings. It's called Judges. You can go back, you can watch or listen to that teaching series on Judges. But the final line in the book of Judges comes from Judges 21-25, and it says this, In those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own Eyes. And so what we see is judges and really the, the judges cycle and the sin and the oppression and then God raising up a judge and delivering the people. All that we covered last year actually is teaching us there's a leadership gap in Israel. There's this need for spiritual leadership, a, a godly leader to step in. And the people really should have had that when they looked to God as their king and the priests. They're supposed to be a a holy nation, of a priestly nation. Uh, They should have followed the priests. And yet what happens is the people in 1 Samuel end up crying out for a king like all the other nations. So God raises up the final judge. His name is Samuel. And he's not only a judge leading the people, he also is a priest He was dedicated by his mother, Hannah, to uh, the work in the Lord's house under Eli, the high priest, and he spent his whole life growing up in that world, but he's also a prophet. The word of the Lord came to Samuel and really broke this this age-old, kind of generations-old silence, prophetic silence that God had with his people. And so God was speaking to Samuel, so he's a judge, he's a priest, he's a prophet. And then in 1 Samuel chapter 8, What happens is the people show up to Samuel. Although he was a great man of God, he was a great spiritual leader, he was a bad parent. And so his succession plan, as he was getting older, was to point his two sons, Joel and Abijah, to be the new leaders of Israel. And yet the problem is they weren't great. They were actually the worst. 
Uh, they accepted bribes. They were corrupt. They did not lead in their father's footsteps. And so the elders of Israel gather this meeting together, and they approach Samuel, and they say, Samuel, we don't want your sons. And so they reject their leadership, and they say, give us a king like all the other nations. Now, there's a ton of lessons to be drawn out of 1 Samuel chapter 8, which is really the beginning of our teaching text for today. But I actually, back in January 2021, preached a teaching exclusively on 1 Samuel chapter 8. So I won't go super in-depth here. All that to say, you can find that teaching on our YouTube page. It's week two of our Kingdom teaching series. The title of that sermon is Kingdom Rejected. Or you can go back and you can listen to it on the podcast if you want to find out more about that. But all that to say, the people want a king, and, and God tells Samuel they have not only rejected you, They've actually rejected me from being king over them. And so Samuel says to the people, essentially, be careful what you wish for. And he tells them that a king is going to take their sons for his army. The king is going to take your daughters for his palace. And he's going to take your stuff. He's going to tax you. And the people say this. When Samuel says, be careful what you wish for, this is what the people say in response. This is from 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 19. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, no, but there shall be a king over us that we, may also, we also may be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. So you see this temptation for the people. And this is really a great lesson for us to learn. They, they have this peer pressure. Now, they were supposed to be a counterculture, if you remember. The blessing of the Abraham, Abrahamic covenant was God was going to bless the people to be different than the rest of the world so that they could be a blessing to the world. So they had to be a counterculture. They had to be different. They have, uh, they're God's covenant people. And the lesson for us is you can't be a light to the world if you are just like the world. You can't be a light to the world and really bless the world if you embody all the same things, if you kind of let that cultural syncretism come in and you become like the rest of the world, the surrounding nations. And, uh, and so the people want that, though. They want a king just like the other nations. And what they get, as we see in chapter 9 of 1 Samuel, is they get a king. The first king of Israel, his name is Saul, and he is kind of the epitome of a king like the rest of the nations. This is what it says in 1 Samuel 9, verse 1. There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, the son of Zeror, son of Becherath, son of Abahiah, a Benjamite, a man of wealth. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. And there was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. And from his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. So what do we find out about King Saul here? The, the, the first things we find out about him is he's from a wealthy family. So he's rich. He's handsome. And it says it twice there, right? He's ha more handsome than anyone else. And he's taller than everyone else. So he's tall, handsome, and rich. So he's, he's kind of like the ideal worldly king, if you think about it. And this really kind of go, is foreshadowing for what we will see in 1 Samuel 16, 7. I don't want to get too far ahead, but Samuel makes this pronouncement where he says that God looks at the heart, but man looks on the outward appearance. 
And there's a contrast between David, the future king of Israel, and the first king, which is Saul, is he, he's really, he, he looks good in this outward appearance. And, and Samuel wants us to know that from 1 Samuel chapter 9. Now, there's a few redeeming qualities. Today, we're going to look at the rise and also the fall of King Saul. There are a few redeeming qualities, especially early on. Saul seems to be humble. He seems to be humble. Uh, in, in chapter 9, verse 21, he kind of has this, uh, when Samuel approaches him about him being anointed as uh, the, the king of Israel, he kind of has this, who am I? I'm from the tribe of Benjamin. We're nothing impressive to look at. And it's almost this, this humility he showcases there. In chapter, tw- in chapter 10, when he's actually chosen, the, the lot is cast, kind of rolling dice to see who the lot falls to be, to be king. He's hiding in the baggage. He, he, you know, he, he, he's selected to be the new king, but he's hiding out. He's not power hungry or overly ambitious in the way that we might think about it, at least early on. Later on in his life, he would become that way. And in fact, a great lesson in the humility we see early on in Saul is he kind of showcases negative aspects or almost a false kind of humility where it could turn out good, right? You know, who am I? Not seeking power, not seeking position. And you know, what happens is he actually showcases being scared of, of men time and time again. He's a people pleaser. And we're going to see some of those negative characteristics play out in the accounts we're looking at today. And then the second thing that we can say about Saul as redemptive is he did exactly what he was supposed to do. He was an effective military leader. He grows the army to, to this height of 330,000 troops. And whenever he meets someone who is a strong soldier or warrior, he recruits them. and you know, He has this mighty military strength. In fact, in 1 Samuel 14, we'll skip ahead for just a moment. This is a recap of what Saul does with the army in verse 47. It says, when Saul had taken the kingship over Israel, he fought against all his enemies on every side against Moab, against the Ammonites, against Edom, against the kings of Zobah, against the Philistines. Wherever he turned, he routed them. And he did valiantly and struck the Amalekites and delivered Israel out of the hands of those who plundered them. So really, that's just this recap of he did well at that. You know, the people wanted a king to fight their battles for him, and that's exactly what they got. They got, you know, a tall, strong, handsome, rich King Saul. So that's really about the rise of Saul. He was selected. He was anointed by Samuel. He was, you know, asked for by the people. And and then things start to turn south. So we're going to spend the rest of our time looking at really the fall of King Saul. And we're going to look at three specific accounts, chapter 13, 14, and 15. And in each one of these accounts, it's, it's another strike against Saul. So if you're taking notes, you can write strike one, strike two, and strike three. The first strike is actually impatient sacrifice. So, so what happens is there's this impatient sacrifice that Saul does. So in, in 1 Samuel chapter 13, the Philistines are the enemy of the people of Israel. And during the reign of King Saul, they were probably the main enemy for the people of Israel. And they're oppressing the people. They had 30,000 chariots. They had all these horseback riders. They had, you know, the technology. Even though the Israelites had tons of people, the Philistines had the warfare.
warfare. They had the weaponry. And in fact, it even tells us that they had a monopoly on the blacksmith market. So whenever the Israelites wanted to get tools made or even weapons made, they had to go to the Philistine blacksmith. So you can see how this would work out. If the Philistines turned on the Israelites, they would just cut them off and they wouldn't be able to get any more weapons. And what happens is in 1 Samuel 13, the Israelites are holed up in caves. They're afraid. And some are even leaving the land. They're going across the Jordan River to to live in other parts of the world because they're so afraid of living under the Philistine oppression. And so the prophet Samuel goes to Saul and he tells him, wait seven days in Gilgal. And when you're waiting in Gilgal, uh, wait seven days. I'm going to come and make, we'll make a sacrifice to the Lord. I'm going to offer a sacrifice because he's a priest, right? Samuel's a priest. And then you can go out, we'll inquire of the Lord, and you can fight against the Philistines. And what happens is Saul waits not seven days, he waits six and a half days. So he gets to the seventh day, and the people are still scared. Remember, they're holed up in caves and in the clefts of the rocks, and people are starting to leave him. He's got this massive army, and some of the people are afraid, and they're starting to desert him. They're starting to leave. And so he he kind of feels this, again, this false humility of people-pleasing, and he goes ahead, and he says, well, well, Samuel's not here. He's looking at his watch. It's the seventh day. I'm going to go ahead and make the sacrifice. So he makes the sacrifice himself, and no sooner does he make this sacrifice himself than Samuel shows up. I mean, it's one of those, like, when your parent walks into your room or, and catches you doing something when you're a kid, or they, they walk in and you just hit your brother or sister, they catch you red-handed doing something wrong, and, and Saul is there, and this is what happens. As Samuel confronts Saul in 1 Samuel chapter 13, we'll be looking at verse 13 and 14. It says this, And Samuel said to Saul, You have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people. Because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Now for us, this might not seem like much, but but for Saul... This is, this is the first signs of his kingdom. You know, there's strains starting to, uh, it just, it's just like starting to unravel. Things are beginning to unravel for King Saul. See, we might sympathize with him. We might say, you know, we've been in situations where, where we've wanted to kind of, you know, move things along and, and doesn't, doesn't God know the timeline that I'm on? But, but to put it into perspective, Samuel was crystal clear with King Saul. He said, wait seven days. And Saul did not wait to the end of the seventh day. He waited until it got to seven days. Whereas Samuel, Samuel was going to show I mean, imagine if he just waited, right? If he just waited, Samuel would have shown up, offered the sacrifice, and things would have been fine. So this is a flagrant act of impatience and disobedience. Another thing that we need to realize is that Saul is the king of Israel, but he's not a priest, And offering that kind of sacrifice is really Saul, he's usurping and assuming Samuel's authority and his his position as the priest and the prophet of the people. So so there's a little bit of like grabbing and grasping for extra power. And then the final final piece of this equation is it's the fear of man. 
Instead of fearing God and respecting the procedures and the sacredness of offering the sacrifice and respecting Samuel and his position, he's more afraid of man. He's more afraid of losing troops and, and, and people running off in fear. And so there's a lesson to be learned from strike one against Saul. The lesson for us is don't rush God's timing. Don't rush God's timing. I mean, we probably won't find ourselves in the exact same situation as Saul here, but all of us have probably wrestled with that tension of feeling like God was leading us to something, or or there was something God was calling us to, but, but it just hasn't happened yet. And so we have this idea of wanting to rush the timing, but here's what happens, is bad timing can take a good desire and turn it into a bad thing. When we rush things and we do things, uh, force our own way, we're trying to take control and rush what God has for our lives. So here's just a few examples of that. Maybe there's a leadership opportunity. Maybe there's something God has called you to do for his kingdom. Maybe God God is even kind of giving you in your your career or, or, or just positionally God wants you to lead in this certain way. But it's not quite the right time for that. And so instead of being patient, you try and climb the ladder on your own. You, tr- you might even get a little corrupt in the process. You might even, you know, shove other people down or, or do sketchy business practices. That's a way that we can turn maybe a good desire, a calling that God might have on your life, turn it into a bad thing. Another one is, is in sexual desire, in people's sexuality, right? We know that, that sex is good, created by God for marriage between a man and a woman. But for so many people, especially young people, what can happen is in Song of Solomon, there's this line about not awakening love before it so desires. And it's the image of plucking an apple off a tree that's not ripe yet. It's sour and it's bitter. But if you just wait it, Right? If you just waited, because what can happen is when you rush to gratify some of those even God-given desires ahead of time, it, happen, it leads you into sexual immorality. It leads you sometimes into toxic relationships and tying your life to someone that, that maybe is not the right person. They're not a healthy person to be with you. Right? So it leads us into sin, and it leads us into all kinds of problems in our lives. And then another example... Maybe this might be one that that many people can uh, relate to is the idea of suffering. That that suffering, God is actually doing a work in our lives as we go through suffering. But so often in our American context, you you know, there's almost no value that can come from pain or no value that can come from suffering. Comfort is the ultimate value, right? That, That kind of external happiness and comfort. And so what can happen is we want to escape at any cost, the suffering. We, we want to take the pain really. We want to get out of whatever situation we're in. But we actually can, can wait on God through the suffering instead of rushing God's timing and allow the Holy Spirit to do a deep work in our lives. I know that's a difficult thing to do. Patience is incredibly difficult, but God's timing is so important for our lives. So here's the positive side of that. Instead of rushing God's timing, wait upon the Lord. I mean, just read through the book of Psalms, and you're going you're gonna to hear this refrain time and time again, wait upon the Lord, wait upon the Lord. And as we wait upon the Lord, whether it's something he's leading us to, whether it's a good thing that he created, a good desire he created in us, or even the suffering, waiting upon God in the suffering, we allow God to be the one who saves us and fulfills those deep desires in our heart. So that's strike one against King Saul. He rushes God's timing. Strike two is a foolish oath 
that Saul makes. So let me set this up. In, in 1 Samuel chapter 14, once again, the enemy is the Philistines. And, and this time we get introduced to Jonathan, Saul's son. And it's almost this deep contrast between Samuel, this very devout, faithful man of God who doesn't disciple and raise his kids well. And then you have Saul, who's incredibly flawed, and we know so much about his shortcomings and his lack of faith. And then his son, Jonathan, somehow turns out awesome. Right? Jonathan, you know, if Samuel's sons are the worst, Jonathan's the best. Jonathan is this warrior. He's faithful. He's committed to God. And, and, and chapter 14 opens where, once again, the Israelites are, are, are about to, to fight against the Philistines, and they're just waiting on the right timing to do so. And Jonathan and his armor-bearer see a garrison full of Philistine, fully armed Philistine troops. And Jonathan says to his armor-bearer, I think we should go attack it just you and me. And he's like, okay, I'm with you to the end, right? It's kind of like a Sam and Frodo moment for Lord of the Rings, right? I'm with you to the end, Mr. Frodo. And she says, okay. And I want to read to you what, uh, what Jonathan's heart is in this situation. He says, it may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. That is a statement of faithfulness, right? He's like, I'm going to put my own life on the line. If God, wants, if God wants me to die in battle, I'll die in battle. But if God wants to save us, he will be the one who wins the battle. He will be the one who gets the glory. He will be the one who has the victory. And so they go, and it's like, like they should make an action movie, like, like picture this slow-mo fight scene. It's 2v20, and, 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 and Jonathan and the armor bearer win. They take out the Philistine garrison, just the two of them. And then the story flashes over to Saul, and, and the, the fighting begins because the Israelites see, you know, this garrison is being taken out, and then they kind of rush, and all, all the people kind of come in, and the, the, the battle starts. The battle really begins. But then it flashes back to Saul, kind of in the waiting, and Saul, King Saul is waiting, and he's starting to get concerned. The same issue he dealt with in chapter 13 is going to happen again where they're waiting, they're waiting, maybe the soldiers are going to desert me. And instead of having this, God will save us by many or God will save us by few, faithful attitude that his son displays, he has this fearful attitude of, oh no, I, I've got to get these guys to stick with me. And so what Saul does is he is an example of fear, selfishness, and foolishness. Look at what it says in 1 Samuel chapter 14, and this is verse 24. And the men of Israel had been hard-pressed that day. So Saul laid an oath on the people, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening, and I am avenged on my enemies. So none of the people had tasted food. So the fighting begins, and everyone's tired, and Saul's like, they're, they're going to they're gonna just run off. Home. They're going to run home. The people are going to start retreating. They're going to abandon me. And so he makes an oath before God. So he's using God for his own purposes. He's kind of using God as a good luck charm to, to bind people in this oath. And he says, you are cursed if you eat food before the battle is even over. Now, what we have to do is we have to back up a little bit and say, this is totally unnecessary. He doesn't need to make this oath. He doesn't need to pronounce a curse over his people. It's hasty. It's foolish. It's, it's driven by selfish motives. Notice he doesn't say until God and his people are avenged. He says until I am avenged, right? He's concerned about his own reputation 
And so here we start to see the shadow side or the dark side of King Saul. And what happens in the story is, is word about this, this oath gets out to everyone in the army except, who do you think? Except Jonathan and the armor bearer. And, and so what happens is Jonathan, he, he, he's, you know, doing, he's doing battle and he, he's exhausted, right? He's, he was the first one to start the battle. And he gets into this, this, uh, this forest and he sees this honey and he dips his hand in the honey. He eats the honey and it says his eyes are bright because he's, he's got low blood sugar, right? It'll take it out of you. And, and so it's, this isn't just like a 5K fun run. This is like all day intense battle. And, and so he eats the honey. He's refreshed and he's like, that's great. And then people find out that he ate the honey. And then they tell him, your dad made an oath that anyone who does this is cursed. They'll be, they're gonna be, they're, he's going to kill you for this. And Jonathan just cannot believe this. This is just devastating. And there's a divide, actually, that grows between Jonathan and his father. And, and so what we see is, once again, the strings of, of, Saul, the strings of, of Saul's kingdom and his legacy, they're starting to unravel. And the soldiers, there, there's another consequence, is the soldiers are so hungry that after the fighting is over, the people are so hasty to just replenish you know, their carbohydrates, or replenish you know, their food stores and their bodies, that they don't prepare the animals that they kill the proper way. And they're eating animals that are still full of the blood. And if you're a, an Israelite soldier, you would know this is not the proper thing to do. It goes all the way back to Genesis 9, where God tells, uh, tells Noah that he's not supposed to eat the blood of the animals because that's where the life is. In Leviticus chapter 7, it's explicitly forbidden from God's covenant people. And so, so the people are sinning. Jonathan has broken the oath. And, and the whole thing about this is Saul did not need to make the oath in the first place. And, and so what happens is finally, as the battle is, is winding down in 1 Samuel 14, 37, Saul decides after all of this stuff has happened to finally seek after God. It says this, and Saul inquired of God, shall I go down after the Philistines? Will you give them into the hand of Israel? But he, God, did not answer him on that day. So finally, right, the battle is pretty much over. As a last resort, the Philistines are fleeing. Saul finally decides to inquire of the Lord. I mean, where was this, this inquisitive attitude before Saul made the hasty oath? And when God doesn't answer Saul, this is first clue that, oh, something's wrong. Right? Somebody must have sinned. Somebody must have maybe broken, broken the oath. And so they cast lots, and there's this, this great irony because lots were used to choose Saul as the king. And now what happens is all the armies on one side and Saul and Jonathan on the other, and they, they cast lots, and the lot falls to Saul and Jonathan. And then they cast lots between Saul and Jonathan. And the lot, of course, goes to Jonathan because he's the one who ate the honey. And, and look at what it says in 1 Samuel 14 verse 43. Then Saul said to Jonathan, tell me what you have done. And Jonathan said to him, I tasted a little honey with the tip of the staff that was in my hand. Here I am. I will die. And, and, and for us, we can kind of you know, hear Jonathan's tone a few different ways. He might be just so faithful that he's like, I'll do it. I'll die. I, I tend to think maybe there's a little sarcasm in his voice. Where he's like, okay, you're the one who made this oath. I tasted a tiny bit of honey, and you're going to kill me? 
because of it. And Saul actually is about to kill his son. He's like, yeah, I got to kill you. And now, now we can kind of hear back to the judges. One of the, the final judges is Jephthah. Once again, that's one of the guys we covered in our series uh, last year. Jephthah makes a hasty uh, oath, a, a, a bad oath, a foolish oath about his daughter. And he, we, we believe he does end up killing his daughter. And it's this horrible story. So Saul is paralleling one of the most corrupt warrior judges from that time period in making this kind of oath. And what happens is, as, as the story wraps up, uh, the soldiers say, Jonathan is the one who really won this battle, right? And they, it says they, they ransom him back, they redeem him back, and they convince Saul, don't kill your son. Now, the point is not that Saul should have killed his son. The point is that he should not have made a vow like this in the first place. He's just like, we can echo back, he's just like Jephthah. He's just, just like the, the problematic judges that we see from that time period. And the lesson that we can learn from this is God uses us, not the other way around. God uses us for his plans, not the other way Around And Jonathan is the positive example. He's faithful, and he's willing to be used by God, even if it costs him his own life. I, here I am to be used. And, and Saul is fearful, and he's foolish. And, and he wants, you know, he's got his plans, and he really looks to God as a last resort. And don't we do that at times? Don't we pray after we've exhausted all our other options? After a situation is true, like evidently to us, out of our control, even if it was never in our control in the first place. I mean, seeking God as a last resort is one of the ways that we try to use God for our plans. Another way we do that is what I call vending machine prayers, where we kind of treat God as, you know, if I just, you know, pray this prayer, I'll, I'll type in, you know, the buttons on the vending machine, maybe he'll give me what I want. Maybe God will give me what I want instead of how can I do what God wants? How can I be looking for what God wants to do? And then it's this idea of really trying to use God for our plans, which is what King Saul did all throughout chapter 14, right? He's using God, using an oath from God, using God to lock people into staying in his army so that you know, he can, his name can be made great and he can be avenged from his enemies, as opposed to the positive side is instead of, you know, instead of using God or trying to manipulate God, which God cannot be mocked, we know that, we, it, we're not even able to, to use and abuse God like we try to sometimes, is to join God in his work. Look for what God is doing in the world and join him in that work. Present yourself to God as a living sacrifice. Present your, the members of your body. Present your whole life to God and say, God, how can you use me today? So that's strike two. Strike three is partial obedience. In 1 Samuel chapter 15, we see this partial obedience in the story about Saul. So, so God, through Samuel, sends this message to Saul to utterly destroy the Amalekites. So we've talked about the Philistines so far. This is the Amalekites. The Amalekites are this people group that, that God gives this difficult command. And when we see these kind of things, I, I want to go on a small rabbit trail for a moment because it should kind of startle us or, or make us feel a little bit concerned. How could God tell Saul to kill literally everyone of that people group? I mean, isn't God a God of love? I mean, why do we see these kind of things in the Old Testament? That's a legitimate question a lot of people have, and we should wrestle with that. So we don't have time to go super in-depth on that, but just a brief note, this is a specific kind of warfare called harem. It's the Hebrew word harem. It means to totally devote. 
uh, to God or to utterly destroy or completely wipe out. And it's important for us to note, this is not the normal way that God commands his people to drive out the Canaanites or to drive out those people. This is the exception, not the norm. It's a specific kind of warfare that's only reserved for the most wicked people. And it's judgment directly from God. So this is not you know, a permissive way for, for, hey, every nation should just try and do this and wipe out whole other people groups. This is judgment specifically from God. Right? God is the only truly righteous and perfect judge. His judgments are always perfect. And it's reserved for the most wicked people. So we also have to, to, to understand the Amalekites were totally corrupt. They were, they were evil people. They were wicked people. And, and specifically, if you go back to Exodus chapter 17... When the Israelites were leaving Egypt from slavery, the Amalekites were some of the first people to attack this helpless people group. They weren't warriors. They were former slaves, and they didn't have an army yet. And the Amalekites saw them as an opportunistic you know, victim. And so they, they attack. And of course, if you read that story, once again, amazing story. It's where Moses is holding up his staff, and, and Joshua you know, creates a, an army overnight, and they, win, they end up winning that battle. But God pronounces that, and this is over 300 years before First uh, Samuel chapter 15, that one day the Amalekites will be wiped out because uh, of their their evil, their wickedness. And so the Amalekites, we, we've got we've to understand, God has given them over three centuries to repent. He's given them over three centuries to turn back to him, uh, to, to not prey on helpless people groups. So what God is doing is actually his righteous judgment on an extremely wicked group of people. So that's just a brief note about this, but that's what Saul is trying to do. Kill everyone, kill every animal, all of that sort of thing. So Saul battles of the Amalekites, and he wins the battle, but this is what it says in 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 9. So he wins the battle, but in verse 9, Saul and the people spared Agag, so that's the king of the Amalekites, and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fattened calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not be utterly destroyed, uh, and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. And all that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. So this, we can kind of think back to Cain and Abel, right? This idea of, of, of Abel giving his, the first fruits to God and Cain kind of giving the leftovers. What happens is they leave the king of the Amalekites alive. And we're not sure the motivation for this. Maybe uh, Saul is superstitious. Oh, I let Agag uh, live. Maybe if somebody ever takes over us, they'll let me live because they've heard I'm a merciful king, right? We're not sure exactly the political reasons, superstition, whatever. We're not sure about that. But for the rest of the stuff, they keep the sheep. They keep the ox. They keep the animals because they're good. And if, if they utterly destroyed them, burn them, the people wouldn't be able to share in the spoils of them. But if they take them, and even if they sacrifice them to God, the people are going to be able to eat the good meat. So it's, it's like this idea of people who, who want to donate to the church, but they want to donate like their crummiest stuff that they own, right? Here's, here's the stuff. The, the Salvation Army wouldn't take it at their thrift store, so I'll bring it to the church, right? It's that kind of mentality that you see here. So Samuel hears the word of the Lord, that this has happened. And he's deeply grieved. He knows this is problematic. So, so these last three chapters, strike one, strike two, strike three, he hears about this and he shows up in chapter 15, verse 13, to confront Saul. And Samuel came to Saul and Saul said to him, 
Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. So he's happy. He's chipper. Saul's like, I did it. Aren't you proud of me? And in verse 14, and Samuel said, what then is this bleeding of sheep in my ears and the lowing of oxen that I hear? Right? Can you picture this this poetic moment where Saul says, and he's probably even convinced, I did it. I did exactly what God commanded me to do. And, And Samuel's like, let's just listen for a moment. You hear those sheep? You hear those oxen? I can hear your disobedience. And you couldn't even hear the commandment of the Lord that was crystal clear. And so Saul is caught, caught off guard by this. And so he, he, he starts kind of, you know, trying to cover up and he blames the people. Well, it, was the, it wasn't me that spared the, the animals. It was the people. It was my soldiers. They did it. To which we would say, well, who's the leader of the soldiers, right? And then he distances himself from God. He, he calls the Lord, the Lord, your God to Samuel. So he's kind of distancing himself. He's not my God, he's your God, right? And then he still claims all along, his excuses, he still claims, I have obeyed the command of the Lord. I did it though, right? You know, I was successful in what I did. And then we have this pronouncement from Samuel in 1 Samuel chapter 15, uh, verse 22. And Samuel said, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected, he has also rejected you from being king. So this is this poetic pronouncement of judgment on King Saul. This is this is it. This is strike three. This is the final straw. What happens is when when Samuel is condemning Saul is there's this idea of listening, right? Did you catch that? He can hear the oxen. He can hear the sheep. And and he says, you didn't listen to the voice of the Lord. Had you listened, right? The last three chapters, were you even listening? Like that's what we say to our kids when they disobey us. Just listen. And then what, what Samuel says is he compares Saul to the pagan people groups that he's trying to destroy. He, he tells him that your pride, your arrogance, it's just as bad, right? It's just as bad as, as the divination. It's just as bad as the idolatry. You, your rebellion, your disobedience is just as bad as these pagan practices that you yourself would detest. So here's the point. Partial obedience is disobedience. Partial obedience is Disobedience. I mean, think about just a small illustration for this. If your kid has Legos, right? Let's say you have a kid and they have a box of Legos and they're all over the ground. We all know what that's like to step on Legos. And you say, clean up your Legos. Put them away. And let's say they put some of the Legos away and they leave the rest out. And then later that night, you step on the Legos in your bare feet in your own home. And you say, I thought I told you to clean up the Legos. To which your child might say, I did clean up you know, some of the Legos, and then you would say, then why did I step on them, right? Because partial obedience, we know, is not, is not obedience. It's disobedience. And, and for, for in this 
moment, right? It might seem harsh, all these pronouncements against Saul, but this is a few years into his kingship, and we have three stories back to back to back. It's called stacking. It's a literary technique, and it's showing us progressively, and we'll see this throughout the rest of Saul's story, progressively, there's this tension, there's this disobedience, there's this fear of man, not fear of God, and the consequences, he's sowing these seeds, he's sowing these seeds of destruction, he's going to reap it, and here this is the straw that broke the camel's back. As Samuel turns to leave, Saul grabs the the hem of his garment, and in this prophetic act, it's torn. He rips Samuel's garment, and Samuel turns around, and this is symbolic, not only for Saul and Samuel's relationship, Right? Samuel's one who anointed him and, and called him to be the king. Their, their relationship, they don't see each other anymore. They don't speak to each other anymore. But really what this prophetically symbolic about is the kingdom of Israel has been torn from the household of Saul. And God is going to seek that king that follows after his own heart. And that's what next week we're, we're going to talk about. Not the, we've looked at the, kind of the fall of King Saul. We're going to look at that king, King David, who's the king after God's on heart. So here's the lesson for us from, this, from chapter 15. It's to follow Jesus with everything. And that might sound familiar because it's, our, it's, it's half of our vision statement as a church, to follow Jesus with everything because he first loved us. And what we mean by that oftentimes is there's untouched areas of our lives. There's maybe areas of our lives where we'll say, God can have my life, but he can't have my finances. God have my life, but he can't have uh, my time my sexuality, you know, there's this, this, this sin over here, there's secret sin that, that I'm unwilling to give up, right? And, and God can have the rest of my life, but he can't have everything. Partial obedience is disobedience. Give God every area of your life. And I would just say, ask the Holy Spirit into your, your life to convict you of what are those untouched areas that you need to let Jesus deeper into your, your soul. And another way we do this is not just untouched areas, but through self-justification, where, where maybe it, there's areas where we're letting God into every area of our life, but there's some areas we just need more sanctification. We need, we need God to, to cleanse us even more and to shape us even more into the way of Jesus. And we do this by self-justifying, which Saul does a ton, if you read through these chapters. And, and we'll say, well, at least I'm not like so-and-so. Yeah, I mean, I, I know I'm not all the way where Jesus is calling me to be, but at least I'm not like my neighbors. At least I'm not like my corrupt boss. At least I'm not like this person or that person. And we compare and we self-justify. And what that does is it prevents us from following Jesus with everything. And what Jesus asks of us in John chapter 10, this the story of the good shepherd, this phenomenal teaching in John 10, 27, Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice You catch that? And I know them and they follow me. For many of us, we would say, I know Jesus. And Jesus would just ask us, well, do you hear my voice and do you follow me? Because it's not just enough to say, like, I'm affiliated with Jesus or I know about Jesus. We actually have to listen to the law of the Lord. As Psalm 1 says, we delight in it, we meditate on it day and night. You can't follow God's way of life if you haven't listened to the law of the Lord. That means we read our Bibles We pattern our lives after the way of Jesus, the teachings of Jesus, and and the other authors in the New Testament in the New Covenant. So we hear the voice of God, and then we actually obey. We have to actually say yes. When our lives aren't in line with Christ, what we do is we assume that we're wrong, and we repent, and we obey Jesus. That's what we do. That's what it means to follow Jesus with everything. 
Another lesson for you, especially if maybe you're watching this and you are not yet a follower of Jesus, is the point is crystal clear from Samuel that religious activity does not erase sin. Religious activity doesn't erase sin. And sometimes we kind of get this idea that, you know, if I go to church enough or I watch enough pod, uh, videos or podcasts or maybe if I, even if I give money, those things save me because that's religious activity. Now, there's nothing wrong with those things. In fact, those are very important parts of maturing in Christ, spiritual practices. I believe God uses a church community. So, there, so, so it's all about spiritual formation and God shaping us in those ways, but not that any of those things save us. Or we might say it like this, obedience is greater than sacrifice. If you just think about it like a mathematical equation. Samuel says God wants obedience over sacrifice. See, Paul's, or, or Saul's excuse was simply that, well, we were going to kill those, those, those sheep and those oxen. We were just going to you know, do it as a sacrifice later. So I was still going to destroy them, but for a different purpose. And what Samuel says is God wants obedience over sacrifice. So the the religious activity that he was going to do doesn't make up for his disobedience. And for us, what that does is it leaves us in this place where we say, well, well, who can be saved? If, if, you know, our good works aren't trying to scrub out our bad works, then, then how are our sins forgiven? And that leads us in this place where we realize we need Jesus to be the sacrifice that atones for our sins. We need the Son of God, and that's exactly what happened in Jesus Christ. The Son of God came to this earth. He lived a perfect life as a perfect model for us to follow, but he died on the cross for your sins and mine as a sacrifice in our place, on our behalf, and he rose from the grave so that we could be raised up into a new life as well. And so for you, if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, I'm not saying don't do those religious activities. I'm not saying don't go to church or or don't serve or don't give or, or any of those sorts of things. Those are good things that God uses in our life. What I'm saying is if you're not a follower of Jesus, if you haven't put your faith in Jesus, that is the only way to the, to, to the Father. It's the only way for us to be part of the kingdom of heaven is by asking Jesus to forgive our sins, atone for our sins, atone for our disobedience. And today can be the day that you ask Jesus to be your savior, to forgive your sin, and your king. That's what the word Christ means. I believe that's going to be a constant theme throughout this series of Jesus is our king. Jesus is our king. And you can sign up to get baptized. That's the way that Jesus asked us to profess our faith in him. It's through baptism. You can find out more information or even sign up for baptism at hillcityboise.org slash baptism. But for us in our lives, we have to ground ourselves in the, in the gospel that, yes, God wants us to follow him with everything, but that's why Jesus is a king worth following, is he laid down his life in our place. He wasn't self-centered. He wasn't arrogant like, like King Saul. He is the perfect king. He is the good shepherd who laid down his life for yours and for mine. And so now we follow Jesus with everything because he first loved us. Thanks for tuning in to the Hill City Church podcast. You can find out more about our church at hillcityboise.org. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Hill City Boise. We hope this teaching has encouraged you helps you follow Jesus with everything.